Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week we look at two issues, the violence and turmoil in the South African mining industry and the standoff surrounding the proposed extradition from Britain of Mr WikiLeaks, Julian Assange. But we start with South Africa, the death of 34 striking miners shot dead by police at the Lonmin Platinum Mine evoked the worst days of apartheid. So what's going on? Joining me is the FT's former Johannesburg bureau chief and author of a book on South Africa after Mandela. That's Alec Russell. Alec, so uh, this incident is, uh, evokes the worst things of apartheid, Sharpville and all that. How, how could it happen? Well, you're quite right to ask the question. I mean, this is 18 years after the end of white rule and uh, democracy is, is established. And when... Apartheid came to an end. Everyone hoped that these sorts of images that have been playing on the television screens and all over the front pages of the newspapers were over. And yet, now we find ourselves with police shooting dead 34 people, 34 people at a mine, uh, and then another 10 people killed. So this speaks to a whole number of things, but in particular, a crisis in the mining industry. So how does the crisis in the mining industry lead us to this point? Well, what has, what has happened is that m- mining, of course, has been for decades, for more than a century, uh, the beating heart of the South African economy. It has a smaller share of South Africa's economy now than it used to, but it is still uh, symbolically and emotionally incredibly important to South Africa. And what's been happening in the last year or so is that South Africa's mining has been in the doldrums and uh, the mining companies are having to make some tough decisions and they've been refusing to agree to the union demands for a massive wage increase and and it's led to a showdown. But I gather there's also a split in the union itself, that there's the, the National Union of Mine Workers is more conciliatory and, if you like, more establishment and that the people leading this demonstration that ended in tragedy was a breakaway union. Well, this is where it plays into the rather dangerous uh, rift in South African politics at the moment. Of course, the NC's been in power since the end of white rule and seems set to remain comfortably running the government for the foreseeable future. But there are factions within the NC who are feuding for control of the party. And this breakaway mining union has got fed up with the National Union of Mine Workers, which was this one part of the uh, ruling alliance, effectively, and was a key player in the whole anti-apartheid movement. And this breakaway union has effectively said they are too close to government and to the elite and to the establishment, and we are the new true voice of the workers. And is this also uh, associated with the famous firebrand, Julius Malema, who was the the leader of the ANC youth wing, who's been calling for nationalisation of the mines, has clashed with the leadership? Is he managing to to make something of this? Malema has seized upon this, uh, inevitably. I mean, he's he's an extraordinary figure. 
deeply controversial, has alarmed many investors with his calls for nationalisation. I think it's fair to say that that the party establishment felt that they neutralised him, they expelled him from the party, and they thought that he would disappear into the wilderness. But he's not going to go away because he has powerful backers in the party who are opposed to President Jacob Zuma. And so he has sort of jumped on this and said, I told you so, the party has sold out to big business and uh, we need to rethink our whole approach to the economy and including we need to rethink the idea of nationalisation. Now, we'll come to nationalisation in a minute, but how do you think big business itself is likely to react? I mean, should we take seriously Lonmin's argument that platinum mining in South Africa is now quite marginal because of the fall in prices and that they might even go out of business there? Because one always thinks of these companies as, you know, okay, they pay by global standards quite high wages in South Africa, but these miners are not exactly rich. Is there really no scope for increasing their wages? No one comes out of this this saga well. The government doesn't come out of it well. The police clearly come out of it appallingly. The mining companies don't come out of it particularly well. In defence of the mining companies... This has been a very difficult time for them in the, in the last year. The platinum market has uh, reduced sharply with the troubles of the European auto industry. And also the big miners are in f- just unbelievably frustrated in their dealings with the government, with the ANC. They find it terribly hard to resolve matters which should be relatively straightforward uh, because of a sort of blend of muddle and uncertainty in in the government. So I I don't think it's fair just to say that the mining companies are being like the sort of traditional mining companies of old, as in just ruthlessly exploiting migrant labour and purely going for profits. That said, there is clearly more that some of the mining companies could do. And I think one idea is that they should come up with something of an olive branch and suggests, for example, that it's time to end the practice of migrant workers' hostels, which is uh, a traditional huge grievance for so many of the miners. These hostels, what what exactly are they? Well, the the hostels are the sort of foundation, really, of the whole mining economy, as in uh, in the late 19th century, when gold and diamonds were suddenly found in magical quantities, uh, the the early capitalists in in South Africa uh, sucked in large numbers of workers from from the whole of Southern Africa and and housed them in these dormitory like buildings outside the outside the mines. But they banned families. These were single sex hostels. They thought this was the most efficient way of sort of maximising the work from from these men. That was unbelievably painful for all these migrant workers. They'd left their families hundreds of miles behind. Now, in the following decades, bit by bit, the system has been watered down. Uh, It became a huge grievance in the sort of mixed in with the whole anti-apartheid battles. But nonetheless, there are still numbers of single-sex hostels. And when you look at the pictures of these angry miners... Uh, waving spears and traditional weapons, being whipped up by witch doctors. That plays straight into the whole narrative of single-sex hostels. And how do you think this is going to end up? They've set up a commission of inquiry. Do you think it might end, actually, with nationalisation? I don't think it will end with nationalisation. I think that it's an emotive topic which the firebrands in the ANC will continue to push and promote as much as they can because it it plays very well with the grassroots. I think for the time being it's not on the agenda. What what worries me more is that actually nothing will come out of this, that while it should be effectively a wake-up call for the whole sort of post-apartheid settlement, I, I suspect that in a week or so we'll go back to the same status quo with the sort of government muddling along uh, and so on. 
Alec Russell, thank you very much indeed. From South Africa to London, where a diplomatic drama is taking place at the Ecuadorian embassy, where Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, has taken refuge to avoid extradition to Sweden and, he fears, onto the United States. Joining me is John Paul Rathbone, our Latin America editor. John Paul, how long can this standoff go on for? The, the, the example that everyone points to is the, the Hungarian cardinal who was uh, sought asylum in the U.S. embassy in Budapest after, uh, after the Russian invasion uh, for 15 years. So, so that's one theoretical out of bound. Um, and at the moment, it does look as though uh, he's going to be there for a long while. Uh, he's backed himself into a corner. Um, in fact, everyone's backed themselves into a corner. But I would have thought that the U.S. Embassy in Budapest, I would guess, is a fairly capacious place with the Ecuadorian apartment in London doesn't sound uh, like such an easy place to spend uh, 15 years if that's what it comes to. Yeah, no, it's a small it's a small, modest embassy. I mean, I've been there before and all the usual affairs of state are carried out there, but it is small and apparently he has a, a small room with a view onto an interior courtyard and he's divided it up with a bookshelf so one side is sleeping, the other side has got his computer and when he has his computer, supposedly he's happy. Do you think there is any resolution that you can see emerging? Uh, the British seem to suggest at some point that they might even storm the embassy, but but they seem to be backing off from that now. Well, that was that was a real faux pas by the British Foreign Office and that played, as in South Africa, to a historic narrative about migrant hostels. In Ecuador, it plays to the whole Latin American narrative of, of, of gum, gumboat diplomacy. So when the um, foreign ministers of UNASUR, which is one of the um, uh, regional organizations that matters in South America, met in Guayaquil, which is a port in Ecuador, this week, there was no mention of Assange. There was no mention of uh, the U.S. or extradition or of Sweden or of the sexual charges that Assange faces in Sweden. It was solely on this point. And that is, um, is an example of how in the middle of the summer um, a developed country with its mind on many things and a lot of staff away can put a foot wrong. And that's immediately latched onto by Correa, who is a populist politician. Why has Ecuador taken the lead on this? Of all the countries in the world, why has Assange ended up in the Ecuadorian embassy? Well, Assange and Correa, the president of Ecuador, do have a a particular relationship, and you saw that in the interview that Assange did on the Kremlin-backed Russia Today program. So there's that. They have a certain chemistry. Uh, But more to the point, Correa is part of this left-leaning group of countries in Latin America that's called ALBA. It includes Venezuela, Cuba, Ecuador, Bolivia, and Nicaragua. And for a long time, um, Correa, who's much more pragmatic, uh, uh, he has a PhD in economics from the University of Illinois, for example, has been a sort of second fiddle in this organization. But lately, he's been really putting himself out and trying to out Chavez Chavez and out Castro Castro. And Chavez, of course, is not very well. He has cancer. He may be dying. Fidel Castro is very old. Uh, and basically out of the picture. So there is, it's wrong to call it sort of a vacuum, but there there may be a position vacant as the head of the Latin American left. And perhaps Carrera is, is trying to sort of position himself for that. He's already made some quite strong statements in the past. And uh, he, he's he's enjoying um, he's enjoying the limelight and and projection of his of his power. Now he may be enjoying the limelight. Is he putting his country at risk in in some way? Because Ecuador is quite a small uh, nation. It, it it's 
antagonizing not just the UK, but the US. And also one suddenly sees in the press all sorts of articles about, well, actually, Ecuador's human rights record or record on freedom of the press is not so great either. Uh, is, is, is Ecuador endangering itself in some way? It's not quite black and white. And, and again, with all this sort of anti-Yankee rhetoric uh, or anti-imperialist rhetoric, everything is a bit more grey than than one reads in the headlines uh, or hears in the headlines or hears in the speeches. So Ecuador is a fairly nifty little country. It it has the dollar, uh, uses the dollar. Um, It's got oil. Um, uh, It defaulted on its debt and it has um, quite a lot of Chinese sponsorship now. So to that extent, Correa may feel economically that that Ecuador is more or less um, safe. There's some trade... Uh, agreements with the European Union and the US that may or may not, well, they have to be renewed every year. So perhaps um, that's the only uh, point uh, of, of, of weakness where, where there might actually be a cost. But what strikes me about what Correa has done is that this is highfalutin rhetoric that plays to uh, a long tradition in, in Latin American politics. The language as well was which the Ecuadorians and the British have conducted their affairs is very, is quite arcane and, 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 and deliberately sort of polite in a way that sort of harks back to another era. And, and there's, there's actually not very little cost, it seems to me, for Ecuador to, to adopt this position, to adopt the moral high ground, uh, which is all about these grand-sounding principles like freedom of speech, um, human rights, um, and the only cost that I see is, is perhaps for the uh, Ecuadorian ambassador here in London who will have to bump into Assange every, every morning. Um, and what about Assange himself? Again, of course, the story changes week by week. But I get the impression that his effort to completely occupy the moral high ground has slightly been damaged by the fact that people are now beginning to focus a little more on the nature of the charges against him, that this is actually a sexual assault charge in, in Sweden, that... Uh, he 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 should answer in some way, and some of his defenders have not exactly helped him by suggesting that well, rape isn't rape, and 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 so on. Well, every everyone's position uh, attempts to occupy the moral high ground looks like people trying to climb onto a two-legged stool. So as as you suggested earlier on, you know, Ecuador has not a hundred percent record on on human rights or press freedoms. For example, there was a, a, a famous case recently where an Ecuadorian journalist called a career dictator. He was sued um, for. 80 million pounds, dollars rather, uh, the judge uh, uh, granted the uh, libel suit launched by Carrera. It was reduced to 40 million and then eventually pardoned. And Carrera has clashed, as have the other members of the ALBA group with the Inter-American uh, Commission on Human Rights. Uh, so on, there's a bit of doublespeak going on. And then with Assange as well, uh, in his speech from the balcony, uh, last weekend, which, by the way, was quite a sort of nice theatrical interlude in terms of London providing general world entertainment between the Olympics and the Notting Hill Carnival this coming weekend, where you've got the 50th anniversary of Jamaican independence. So spirits will be high. Uh, Assange from his balcony talked about, again, grand sounding principles, um, but very little about his. Uh, uh, in fact, he didn't even mention Sweden and the um, allegations there. So how do you think it's going to end? I mean, you raised the possibility when we began talking that he could be there for 15 years. But my money would be that we'll get a resolution before then. But I can't quite see how. What, what, what's your guess? And I accept it's a guess as to how this will end. Well, the British would like to finesse it. Um, one way the Ecuadorians have offered 
uh, is uh, they've asked Sweden um, if Sweden could guarantee not to extradite Assange to the U.S. And Sweden has two extradition treaties with the United States, and the second is a supplement to the first, which is actually quite uh, is quite permissive and open. And you can you can sort of you can lend someone to the United States to face charges in the United in the United States, whereupon he would then be returned to Sweden after the charging or after serving a sentence, it's, it's not made clear. So Ecuador has asked Sweden to make that kind of guarantee, uh, which, of course, has got nothing to do with Britain, and that puts the ball in Sweden's court. And to be clear, the, the Americans haven't yet submitted an extradition request, have they? The Americans haven't submitted an extradition request. Um, when you think about, just cursorily, what Assange's crime might be, uh, he didn't um, steal the information. Uh, he published it uh, in the same way that the New York Times and El Pais and The Guardian here in England published uh, the WikiLeaks stories. So I, it's hard to think of a country uh, with a stronger record for the defense of human rights in the United States. And it would be a fascinating uh, uh, moment should Assange end up in the United States facing a court defending his principle on the basis of free speech, which, of course, is in the First Amendment of the Constitution, that would be um, a fight worth watching. John Paul, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And that's it for this week. My thanks also to Alec Russell and to Martin Starber here in the studio. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.